Hello and welcome to Sacktown Talks. Today we have a very exciting show. We have Assemblymember Jim Cooper and Assemblymember Keith Flora here to talk together and uh, discuss today's issues and topics. Uh, gentlemen, how's it going? Welcome to the show. It's going well. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah thanks. Uh, there's not much going on right now, so <laughs> we need something to do. <laughs> well, thanks for stopping by. As, as you mentioned, there's absolutely nothing going on. Uh, there's a pandemic. There's been social unrest. Um, but I'm sure we can find some things to talk about. Um, you know, the other day, I guess a budget was passed. Um, kind of what are your guys' thoughts on the budget and kind of how did your districts end up in the, uh, the budget? I think there wasn't much there. It was really COVID-19 related and um, a lot of other things. And we aren't really going to know because we don't know what the revenues are. So we need to pass the budget because of the constitutional deadline. But I think as the coming months um, inch forward, we'll know a lot more, but um, not till July or August probably. Yeah, I think, you know, overall, um, the budget that the legislator passed, you know, obviously the governor is not necessarily on board with at this point. So it'll be interesting how those negotiations, you know, come through in the next couple of weeks um, through budget trailer bills. But there was some stuff in that budget that was really, really good. Um, and there were some things in there that were really, really concerned about, especially when the ag community on cap and trade and revisiting some of those big bills that we had passed a few years ago. They're wanting to try to relook at that and, you know, kind of transfer funding through the budget process into CARB which is not typically the way that that goes. But uh, so there's a lot of good in that budget actually. And then there's some things that are pretty concerning, but overall it was uh, it was an interesting Monday. Um, are, are you guys getting feedback yet from the administration? Do you know kind of where things are gonna move or are you are you guys still sitting back and waiting to see what, what the governor's reaction is to your budget? I think they're all doing the dance right now. They're, they're in negotiations today as we speak, working out things. So I think from what I'm hearing is that they're close. It's just working out some final details, whatever that may be, between the big three? Same thing. <laughs> um, you know, I guess, you know, what's, what's interesting, I, I guess, about having you guys both on is, you know, you guys are, are from, you know, different districts, but maybe not that similar, or maybe not that different in scope. Um, you know, Elk Grove, Turlock, um, you know, very kind of similar type cities. Um, you know, I remember being in Elk Grove, um, before you were the police chief, before you were the mayor, Jim, uh, you know, when there was only, what, 30,000 people, now 200,000 people, kind of, I guess, can you guys kind of talk about your districts and kind of how they're, they're um, surviving through COVID and kind of the, the struggles they've had? Sure. So we're at the north end of the Central Valley. I represent South Sacramento, Elk Grove, Dalton, Lodi. Uh, districts are about half a million people, half a million people each. So they're pretty fairly big districts. Um, just a lot of the same concerns, uh, job, em employment, housing, um, people are struggling to get by just to pay their rent or their mortgage, to put food on the table, they've got utility bills to pay, um, so there's a lot going on and people want to get back to work and they, they, they want government to help. Uh, the state's done, stepped up and done quite a few things as has the federal government, but we need more help. Um, in January, we had a big surplus and now we're going to a deficit, so it's, it's, it's troublesome and you hear it in your constituents' calls and their emails. Um, they're at their ends wits. So anything we can do to help uh, make it better, that's our job. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, in, in our district, I, I don't know about Coops, um, but I'm sure just because of our vicinity to each other, you know, it's interesting. Central Valley, we have a lot of the same issues. You know, Jim and I are from different parties, right? Right. But our constituencies are relatively the same. Our issues are relatively the same. Mm -hmm. And so when COVID dropped in our hat, you know, a lot of our, you know, non-essential workers just had a tremendous issue with EDD trying to get unemployment. And that has been one of the just the fascinating things about COVID is working through the unemployment process with EDD. 
I mean, my staff has done hundreds of cases on an ED. Some of them are pushed out five, six, seven weeks, and we still haven't got closure on them. And that's our office, like, fighting every day to get, you know, some resolution. Meanwhile, these families have no income. And so I think for us, in a lot of different ways, um, you know, we've always known about the DMV struggles, Mm -hmm. right? And this just ripped the Band-Aid off um, on EDD. And now to, you know, support them in just a little bit, I mean, there was a massive influx of cases, you know, almost overnight. And they couldn't handle that kind of volume. But EDD has been a huge, huge concern. And really after about week six within the 12th Assembly District, we started seeing the constituents' attitudes start changing. Like people were getting really, really upset. Right. And I mean, we've got a lot of voicemails. They weren't necessarily you know, yelling at us as an office, but just frustration, just trying to voice their frustration because they get put on hold. They're not getting through to a live human. You know, and it's over a simple screw-up. And a lot of times, I mean, there are just very simple screw-ups on the application that sets them back weeks. And it's really, really frustrating for them. So it, it's been a fascinating 12, 13 weeks. Do you know if people who are not getting unemployment, if they're getting, I guess, back pay, so from the day that they, they you know, were unemployed back to March to now? Once their case goes through, I mean, obviously it has to get reviewed, but mm-hmm. once their case goes through and everything goes through properly, yes, they will okay. get all that. But that doesn't necessarily help them in the medium. You know, I mean, the bills are just stacking up and there's nothing they they can do. And then even worse, um, a lot of times they can't put food on the table. I mean, when you're living paycheck to paycheck, which a lot of people are, and we've learned that very quickly, um, this is a huge, huge issue. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess one other interesting thing is, is both of you guys come from a public safety background. Jim, you from the police force, you from the firefighters. You know, there's always kind of this sense that you know, people don't like cops. People love firefighters. Oh, we're lovable. Uh, <laughs> um, that's because they rescue uh, cats out of trees. That's right. That's exactly, true. Exactly. Grandma's happy afterwards, by the um, way. You know, the only time they're mad at firefighters is when they're taking the parking spots at Costco or the grocery store. It's a true statement. Um, but, you know, this, this you know, past two weeks, as, you know, people have compared it to a mixture between 1918 and 1968, you know, civil rights movement mixed together. Um, and kind of, you know, what we've seen in, in, in these towns and, you know, downtown here, you know, all the windows shattered and stuff, I guess kind of what are your thoughts on kind of some of the, the things that's happened the last uh, few weeks given your kind of backgrounds in, in public safety? Well, I think in public safety, uh, Heath and I have seen a lot. Uh, we've seen people at their best and uh, people at their worst. Uh, the killing in Minneapolis, um, it shouldn't happen. It, it was bad. It was, it was horrible. I saw it. I was shocked. Um, and I think it was also the perfect storm because of COVID-19 and a lot of folks that were in. And when it happened, it, things just erupted and people had harbored some feelings for, for quite some time. So it really changed the dynamic. And what I saw most um, strikingly was other folks besides African-Americans that were out marching. You saw a lot of different races that were engaged. And in the past, you haven't seen that. So I really believe that we're at a watershed moment here in our country. No, absolutely. You know, I think in... Coop says it, you know, on the public safety side, on, on our side of the, the, you know, the fence, the fire side, right. you know, it's, it is interesting. And obviously we, you know, firefighters, cops, we, you know, bicker back and forth all the time. And it's really out of, you know, the cops jealousy of the firefighters. <laughs> um, but we always have really nice clean stations that they can come visit and, you know, set in the recliners and things like that, which they love to come by around dinner time, which is weird. True. They always come by around dinner time. But it is interesting because we obviously support our brothers and sisters in blue um, in, in every way possible. And they are. They're going through a, a serious, serious issue. But I don't think the fire service is exempt from this either. 
And I think the fire service needs to do some soul searching as well. That, you know, we haven't had these major issues, but I think we need to make sure that we don't. I think we as a society, it, it, it's enough's enough. Right? We, we, we know that there's issues and it's time to fix it. And I think we are at that pinnacle, at that breaking point where we can have an honest conversation and, and just try to move this thing forward. Because we, I don't want my kids to grow up going through what we're going through now. Because right. it's hard to explain riots. It's hard to explain, you know, mass chaos. I mean, the First Amendment protects your right to, you know, freedom of speech. You can protest all day long. And that's a great thing. And I think a lot of our communities are exercising that. As long as they're done peacefully and in order, um, I, I was like, Coop, very, very supportive of that. I think the big thing with, with, with the protest and what's going on is it's been good, but um, we've got to definitely make some reforms in law enforcement. But I think bigger picture, if you think about it, um, I think about the problem areas in Sacramento that have been that have always struggled. They've been that way 30, 40, 50 years. It has never changed. What do we know? They've got underperforming schools, no banks, no supermarkets, no arts or sports programs for kids. We spend a lot of money across the state in different cities, build arenas, we name them. But what do we do for these underserved areas? We haven't done anything. And that's the issue. It's the haves and have-nots. And that gap has widened uh, increasingly over the years. And that's really what it comes down to. So a lot of those things. So there's a lot of balls in play. And, you know, we can fix the, the public safety stuff, the cop stuff. But until we address those other issues, there will continue to be problems and you'll continue to have that divide. So there's a lot of other things we need to fix. And it's funny now, these corporations wanna come in and get involved and you know, Black Lives Matter and we're giving money we wanna help, but it goes further than that. And there's a lot more to do and to really change society. So a lot of work to be done. I'm heartened by what we've seen so far, but we're, no, we're nowhere near done yet. Um, you know, there's been, you know, the, with the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been kind of a, a cry for defunding the police or shifting, I guess, budget items meant, meant for law enforcement to, I guess, different different areas, or I guess changing the way law enforcement looks in the future. Um, I know like the city of Sunnyvale has like an interesting program or where police and fire, I guess, are kind of interchangeable. Okay. I guess in this kind of conversation of, of changing law enforcement, um, I, I guess is the Sunnyvale model something that might be in the future, kind of, they're talking about, I guess, mixing social work with police force, or I guess having um, you know, police doing different things and kind of, I guess, what are you guys' thoughts on, on the future of, of kind of this defund police conversation? Where is it going to lead? Well, well Sunnyvale is the only hybrid that I'm aware of in the state. I don't know anyone else that does that. But I think when you talk about defunding, um, there's a lot more to it. And, you know, a lot of folks have gotten on a bandwagon lately. And I guess my response to them is, where were you in the past? This stuff has been going on for years. Now you want to fund these underserved communities. Why aren't you funding them before? Well, sudden now, because there's pressure on and people are in your face. So you should have been funding them all the time. So you think about it. You know, I, I could talk about a lot of things, and but you go in and, and Heath is a firefighter. He's gone to these houses and neighborhoods, and he knows they're the same. So we see it day in and day out. But now because of pressure, in, in some aspects, you've got a, they've got a gun to their head. So they've got to act now when they should have been acting all along. No, that, that, that's my frustration. No, absolutely. And I, I don't I don't think defunding law enforcement is the answer. Right. I mean, I, I think it's a very um, a political moment that mm -hmm. people are, are seizing. Um, but if we aren't willing to to change our hearts and actually have a conversation with these communities, I mean, our local uh, law enforcement community within like the city of Modesto, the sheriff's department, Stanislaus County, uh, uh, Pat Withrow, the sheriff of San Joaquin County, the amount of community outreach 
that I'm, and I'm incredibly, and even like Rip and PD, and you know, I don't want to leave out any of my other district mm -hmm. PD, but like we spend a lot of time in the communities that we represent. I mean, Chief Carroll is a, is a great example of the amount of time that he spends with the African American community and trying to educate them and, and having this open dialogue, this conversation, because I think what's happening is the first time the community sees you, and Coop, you just kind of touched on this, when, when there's issues, if that's the first time the community's seen you, mm. well, you're not sincere. You're only doing it because you have to. You have no other choice than to engage. But when they see law enforcement in the communities constantly working with the community leaders, there's a tremendous um, swell of pride within the community. Like, listen, we know that there's issues, but we know when there's a problem, we can have an honest conversation and we don't deteriorate into these, these violent protests that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had you know, a couple knuckleheads in the city of Modesto on that protest day, but it was, it was relatively peaceful, which was awesome. And I think that's largely in part because of the engagement that law enforcement has had within the communities that they represent. And we need to change things with the crime stuff. I mean, being homeless is not a crime and law enforcement's forced to deal with this. Fire service too, a lot of medical calls where oh, man. we're taking people every day to the emergency room and dealing right. with those calls with that. Um, it, it shouldn't be a crime, we shouldn't criminalize that mental illness is a biggie. Fire department's very involved in that, almost calls for service. Those shouldn't be crimes. My degree is in business. So I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist or a mental health worker. Thank those God. Folks, yes, thank God. Those <laughs> folks are important. But those folks that know that job and do that role should be out working with these people. We, yeah. we go to the number of calls that we go to shouldn't involve that. A lot of family disputes, you know, things like that where I'm not a counselor, but we de facto we've done those things. Both services, fire and, and law, has been forced to do that because society, um, society's got a lot of problems, and, and people don't know that. When you go in the homes and see these things, I mean, you've got you've got teenagers beating their parents up, and the parent, you know, they call you and they want you to do something about right. it. Well, I mean, it's, it's just there's just so much that's wrong with society mm -hmm. that it, it's tough to fix. So I would say that there's no one magic bullet to cure all the the world's problems. You know, hopefully we do cure some with what's gone on in the past uh, in the past weeks, several weeks, but um, it's still a long ways away to, to resolve these issues. And you know, it's an interesting thing, like Jim, you know, when did you start in the force? Was it somewhere in the, the mid 80s, late it 80s? Was, yeah, 84. 84, so, you know, 36 years ago. Right. Um, I guess, you know, how was, you know, policing back 36 years ago in Sacramento County? And I guess, have you seen, has you, have you seen change today? Uh, I've seen quite a bit of change, but here's here's what, what astonishes me. Mm. I've been gone since uh, 2014. I spent 30 years there. So what is that? That's 36 years removed. The same problem areas that were going on then, the same stuff that's going on today. The same communities. The same communities in Sacramento and throughout the state. The same problems 36 years later. And why do they wonder what's going on right now? Because they've been doing the same thing. They've gotten the same result. That's what has to change that people don't get. They do not get that. And until that changes, we can do a lot of things, a lot of work. Things will not change. You've got to invest in those communities, and they're communities of color. You have to invest in those, and they don't, and they haven't. I lived in Sacramento my whole life, and I could tick off areas that you don't want to go to that are problematic, and it's always been that way. And I would argue if things change, those lives of those kids and those people living there would be dramatically different. A lot of those kids get free breakfast, free lunch, and free dinner. Mm. A lot of folks didn't know that. In some of these Title I schools, you can get free dinner there. You know, they're, they're just getting looking for the next meal to make sure they're fed and they're not hungry. 
So we've got a lot of work to do. And you know what? A lot of it requires money. Right. You know, right now, you know, I know a lot of the folks on the, on the, I believe in climate change, but a lot of folks are talking about climate change and green energy, all this stuff. I don't hear people talking about that right now. They're talking about, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to get food on the table? How am I going to get to work? How am I going to put gas in my car? So in some instances, some folks are tone deaf. Right. Um, kind of, I guess, building on this, you know, what you've talked about is, you know, providing meals. Those are very basic, you know, human issues. And it's always easy to take care of the basic things. But obviously, more needs to be done. Kind of what is that, I guess, next tier of, of services you can start providing these communities to start actually making change? I mean, I think for, for us, you know, and I mean, it's a very simple thing, but the Boys and Girls Clubs. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we have right now, California is really expensive to live, right? To live in, to right. provide for your family. A lot of families, both parents are working. And so our kiddos, they have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to help them with their schoolwork. And so we have, I mean, we talk constantly about investing in our kids. I mean, we hear that statement throughout the year, all the time. We have to invest, we have to invest, we have to invest. But if we don't get these kids at an early age and invest in them, in, into them then and put them on a career path, work with whatever their skill set is and encourage that growth. I think when I start, when I talk about like changing the hearts, like that's kind of what I mean. Like we are not investing in kids at a very young age. We have these boys and girls clubs and it's primarily in the underserved communities. And to Jim's point, and we wonder why nothing's ever changed. Well, because we haven't actually fixed the problem. Mm-hmm. We're putting band-aids on it. But if we're not willing to take kids whose parents are, are out working and to provide quality daycare, Provide our boys and girls club, help them with their homework, give them a skill set. And these the boys and girls clubs up and down the state are amazing. It's incredibly frustrating to me that we have not put a priority on that. So when I talk about community, like that's where my heart goes, right. is these with the kids. Because our generation, I mean, we're sort of stuck in our ways. You know, we are. I mean, we're, we're, you can't teach an old dog new trick, you know, but it's our kids. Is, and that's the generational change that I think we all really need to be fighting for. We can make huge improvements right now. But for me, we have to start investing in our kids. What was interesting is, is Governor Newsom funded um, early preschool. The previous administration, previous governor, didn't believe in early preschool. But this governor does. I think it makes a difference. Parenting is not equal. You some really good parents and some parents that were never taught to be parents themselves and, and don't have the skills. So if we can reach out to these kids early and help them, and you know if you're not reading it by th- in the third grade at third grade level, you're gonna more than likely fail and get ahead of the curve and, and help these kids. It helps everyone in society. It helps everyone turns out turns out better. It's a lot easier to front end load it than to have somebody incarcerated in prison. So I want to put all the money we can and make sure those kids turn out okay and get the skills to succeed in school, because no one wants to be. You know, I don't want to say just not getting it in school. And it's tough with teachers. You ask teachers, there are some serious issues right now. And you can see it at a young age. And we want to change that narrative. And I think Governor Newsom did a great start in, in doing the early preschool. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting thing that's, that's been talked about is, I guess, the unrealized potential we have with these kids. You know, you have these young kids who are testing off the charge. And, you know, we're not taking advantage of those kids and making sure that they're getting the proper education all the way through with the support systems from, you know, preschool all the way through high school. I guess an interesting thing you guys just, you know, talked about and just passed ACA 5, 
kind of undoing Prop 209. I guess, how do you see ACA 5 as part of this conversation to help promote change? Well, it's the biggest thing that's passed back many, many years ago, and it just goes to the voters. So, I mean, we're elected officials, and the voters entrust us to come to Sacramento and make good decisions on their behalf. This is a chance for the voters to get to actually make the decision. So I'm, I'm very supportive of that because however they want to vote, they vote on it. And once it's done, it's done. But I th do think some things need to change. And uh, just take a look at anything. I think um, always going back and reevaluating things, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's some kids that would not have opportunities that will get the opportunities. And that's just having a fair chance of leveling the paying field. That's all it does. Mm -hmm. So I, I supported it. I went up on it. Yeah, so you know, I, um, I didn't support it. I actually just laid off of it because I, I completely agree with Coop on the voters need to make this decision. Um, there is a lot about um, ACA five that I, that I I am concerned about. You know, it, it seems like we're taking it a step backwards, um, and and I don't know if I particularly like that. You know, I mean, what in Prop two and I and basically it was you couldn't dis discriminate against mm -hmm. you know race, sex, religion, all of those things. And to just totally completely repeal that now i think there is potentially good that comes out of that and if you look at the education numbers on what communities benefited the most um you know the the african-american community is at the very bottom of that and so I, I think there is some adjustments that could be made but i i do um, fear that a total repeal of prop 209 um, could be problematic and i understand his views on that you know i in the big picture there's there's sometimes i don't vote on bills and people think you should support this bill, but I may have a problem with things in that bill. So, I mean, that, that happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I understand it. Uh, I'm around Heath, and, you know, he's very supportive. And, and, I, and I, so I, I get that. So when you – we put on, like, 4,000 bills a year. That's it. Huh? There's a lot of bills, <laughs> and it's, 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 it, it's heart-wrenching sometimes, you know. But it, it's just tough. You're trying to do the best job you can. And I don't think anybody over there has any malicious will or intent. Uh, everyone's just trying to do the best they can for the citizens of California. I think Coop kind of touched on it. I mean, and in a lot of these bills, there's, you know, 50%, 60%, 70% that you really, really like. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, both parties, like, ha and then you as an individual have your own ideology, you know, what you believe in. Right. And it's like, so can you get past that percentage that you don't like? You know, is it a personal, personal issue or is it a party issue or whatever that may be? And so, I mean, that's the, the interesting fact on, on some of these hot button bills like this. It's like, yeah, like the, the, the reason it's coming about, totally get it. You know, there's a lot in there I think could be very, very beneficial, but then there's this other aspect of it as well. And so I think, you know, it's, it is fascinating because a lot of these bills, most of them have stuff in there that are good and that you like. Here's what would shock people. So we're in the assembly, there's 80 members in the assembly and 40 in the Senate. I cannot tell you how many bills pass by the bare minimum of 41 votes. Yeah. Okay, so 41 votes, obviously on a tax bill, it's two thirds, you need 54 out of 80, but most bills are 41 out of 80. So why are there only 41 votes? Where's the other, you know, 39 people at? Yeah. Because yeah. There's, people are laying off or not voting for it for, for one reason or another because some of the stuff that comes through shouldn't come through, yeah. shouldn't be there. So I mean, I, I want someone to go through one day and see how many vo how many votes passed with the bare minimum number. Where's everybody else? Where do, where do they know that we don't know? 
That's the frightening part. Or when they close at 41, you know, they get to 41, they close the role, and then, you know, everybody adds on after because they want to quietly support it or quietly oppose it, you know. Every... Uh, yeah, I think a good example of this the other day was that uh, mortgage relief bill oh, uh, that went up. It had 40 votes, and they did it again, and it lost 10 votes. I think they closed um, at 25. Yeah. When they finally closed and the role. So seeing the before and after photos of, yeah. of I guess, how the votes build or decelerate when you see it's not going to happen. Making sausage is very ugly. Yeah. But it's interesting. Like if, if a piece of legislation is that good, like you shouldn't have to work that hard to just get 41 of your colleagues to support it. And, and, and especially when you have to come to the Republican side right. to try to get a vote because your Democratic side is saying, uh, no. So it is, it's interesting. Like it's, um, uh, certain, um, members, it, they, they like to run these very, very controversial bills. Right. And it's, it just it makes it uh, very, very fascinating, like how the political dynamic within the building, when the vote is going on, how it all kind of develops. It's, it's very interesting. So you can do 50 bills in a two-year session. I don't, I don't do that many because you think about if, if we introduce 4,000 bills in a session, are there really that many new good ideas? No. Yeah, I don't think so. But <laughs> still, you got to go through all these bills, and it's just, you know, sometimes, man, I love my colleagues, but... Huh. Well, I, I remember one time, Coop, on one of my bills, you told me this is a, what is it? It's a problem looking for a solution or a solution yeah. looking for a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's stuff you get. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of, I guess, talking about your bill packages, you know, a lot of people did have 20, 30 bills starting at the beginning of the year. COVID happens. You guys are told to cut back. Kind of, I guess, what did your bill packages look like at the beginning of the year and what do they look like today? Huh. And Heath, do you have any bills alive still? Hey, yes. <laughs> so... I mean, it's actually a great question, and, I, and it's, it's something that I've actually become a little bit frustrated about. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, when COVID happened, we got emails, all of us, you know, everybody in the building was like, kill every bill that's not COVID-related, mm -hmm. or we're going to kill it for you. Right. I mean, that was essentially the email. Mm -hmm. And perfect. Like, I totally get that. Like, we're, we're, our, our days are going to be shortened. We're not going to be there. Like, I'm totally on board. So we did that. Um, we really killed everything with exception of one. And, you know, we've got it off the floor um, on Monday. But then you start seeing certain groups start pushing stuff through certain committees that at the very best are a stretch to be COVID related. Mm -hmm. So here you ask all the, the mod members who are like, listen, we'll kill everything, be team players, do all this stuff. And then when you see the wish list of, of you know, and I'm a labor guy, but you see the wish list of labor and everything that they've wanted in the last, you know, decade. Right. Suddenly it's coming through labor committee and it's all COVID related. Well, this bill was actually in print six years ago and nothing's really changed. And now we're jamming it through because it's a COVID related bill. Well, no, it's not. It has nothing to do with COVID. You're just being, you know, you know it's just uh, opportunistic. Right. And it's, it's a little bit irritating, but uh, is what it is right now. Coop, how's your bill package looking? Small. I think this year it was started out like probably 12 bills, and uh, I think it's down to three. So just a, a small bill load. It's just um, you don't have to go out there and, and put a lot of bills in print. You just go out there and do your job and, yeah. you know, try and shepherd along good legislation and hold back the bad legislation. Um, Coop, you know, you're very involved with the MOD caucus. Uh, you know, it's mostly, I think it's solely a Democratic caucus, but I guess kind of bipartisan there are mods out there kind of can you explain i guess kind of the bipartisanship of, of the moderates so we just work amongst everybody we try and just do we call it, call it sometimes a common sense caucus um we just want to 
do what's best for our constituents. And I think everyone's doing that. Uh, but sometimes the things we do um, don't affect that. You know, like I said, I, I can go back to climate change. I believe in climate change. Climate change is real. But a lot of the laws we pass, for instance, electric vehicles, if you buy an EV, you get a rebate from California and from the feds. So we've got 10 years of data where they've given cash rebates for electric vehicles. My district's got a little less than 1%. The U.S. and Bay Area districts has gotten like over 30%. So I'll give you a good Senate district. Mm. You know, for 10 years, they've gotten rebates for 600 cars. A Senate di or uh, some districts in the Bay Area have gotten them for 30,000 cars. So where the air that is the worst is the Central Valley, not the mm. Bay Area. So it's, 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 it's kind of the haves and have-nots. So that's how we look at it. How do you fix that and make it equal? And you talk about people of color in those areas, they've got the worst pollution in the state. But yet I'm tooling around in Huntington Beach or the Bay Area in an EV solely to go in the carpool lane. Right. And because I can afford it. So I, I just got to call BS on that. Yeah, when you have $100,000 EVs, it's, it's hard yeah. for people it, in the Valley to buy them. Exactly. And giving rebates for everybody. I guess the other you, thing you could be a billionaire yeah. and get a rebate. And you're, 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 here you are, some, somebody that's unfortunate and poor, and you're driving around a 20-year-old car, just hoping it starts up every morning. Right. And on that note, Jim, you, you mentioned it. Like, in Central Valley, our, my constituents, we don't talk about climate change. It's not even on their radar. I mean, people literally just want to put food on the table. Mm -hmm. And so they couldn't care less about it. And it is interesting on that particular issue. You know, you have you know, the Bay Area folks that, like, lecturing us on how important climate change is in our district. Well, that's fascinating. Because in four years, I haven't had one single conversation with anybody about it. They do want clean air. And I mean, I grew up in the Central Valley. My family's in ag. And you know, growing up, you couldn't see the foothills on both sides of the valley. Now you can. We are making drastic improvements to our air quality. But Coop's absolutely right. Like We're, we're incentivizing the haves. And meanwhile, the have-nots are just dealing with the crumbs. And I, and I also bring that in back into like the education system as well. Like we are not putting these dollars where they need to go. Yeah. You know, a lot of the money go in the education, you know, goes to pensions and teachers, and, and those are all very important things that I'm supportive of. But we have to get some of this money to the kids, to that that local kid level, and then I think we can make some progress. But the, our Central Valley communities are are very very diverse, and we tend to just be uh, looked over from time to time. Yeah, that's that's a constant thing that we kind of hear about is the Central Valley is the forgotten part of. California and you know you, you hear Governor Newsom always you know give his canned line of we are many parts but we are all one body and you know he's kind of I guess trying to give a focus to the Central Valley I guess kind of you know how, how do you think he's done in, in paying attention to the Central Valley and I guess what what could he do better it's been great he's made trips down there he's, he's involved he's engaged um, I think he's doing what he what he needs to do because people want to hear that they want to know that their governor cares about them and I think he's shown it even before being elected, making those trips down there, engaging those folks and talking to them. And let me tell you this, California's biggest industry is not the tech industry, it's ag. $50 billion a year is California's biggest industry. In my district, it's $3.2 billion. California feeds the world and feeds the, the nation. Everything we eat and wear comes from ag, and a lot of folks don't get that. So sometimes, you know, uh, some of the things we do don't necessarily help our farmers and ranchers, and it, it hurts them. And why would you want to hurt your, your largest industry that brings in a lot of tax dollars? Yeah. I think overall he's done a pretty good job. Um, I, I do think, you know, and I've I'm, I'm been very complimentary. Of, mm -hmm. And like Coop said, he has actually shown a lot of love uh, to the Central Valley. I do think uh, we took a, a few steps back with COVID. 
Um, I wish we would have went to a more regional approach as opposed to statewide, you know, mandate approaches mm -hmm. because not all of our districts were um, affected equally. And so, you know, I think the Central Valley got uniquely hurt in that regard, um, where we didn't have quite as many cases, you know, even the northern part of the state didn't have quite as many cases, but they were still by county under the state guidelines. Well, then we're just killing small businesses for really no particular reason because there isn't that, that emergency yet. Right. And especially when you have a lot of, you know, minority-owned businesses, uh, women-owned businesses that are, you know, the mom-and-pop Main Street stores. Well, they're shutting the doors, but then, like, large box stores can remain open, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it where, make any sense. And that's what my community was just right. really, really frustrated about. It's like, wait a minute. Like, I can go to Home Depot and stand in line, like, you know, packed in like sourdines, mm -hmm. but, you know, the flower shop on Main Street can't be open. Right. So I, I think we, 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 missed, um, we missed a little bit there. So I think overall he's done really, really good. I just really wish we would have went to a more regional uh, approach um, as, as it relates to the business community um, as far as like Central Valley businesses. Yeah, it's interesting, Jim, you brought up, you know, global warming, kind of greenhouse gas, the air, but a big, you know, issue in the Central Valley is water, you know, you know, clean drinking water. I guess, how are, how are we doing in, in terms of, of providing clean drinking water to the parts of Central Valley that need it? A lot, lot of work to be done. Um, they, they've done some steps, some small steps, but you know, look at uh, water resources, they're making these edicts for the farmers and ranchers and everybody else. And that's the crazy part that's frustrating. People still don't have clean drinking water in this day and age. And this is, a, this is not a third world country. How do you have these problems? And it's just not doing the job that needs to be done. You know, and I, I'm a person that believes uh, people over, over animals or fish. That's, that's the toughest part. People need to have that. So, you know, you try and balance it out, but um, it's, it's, it's interesting you have these rich envirals running things that really aren't affected. They're not the ones with, with horrible drinking water. So the people that are, that are driving the message are the wrong folks. And I would argue, Jim, I mean, the enviros in a lot of ways are the ones that put us in this position. You know, you know, a decade ago, 20 years ago, even 30 years ago, when drip irrigation just first started coming out, you know, everybody was looking at flood irrigating. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, man, we're wasting all this water. But not realizing that, you know, the crops take 10%, 10% evaporates, and the rest of it gets absorbed, and we get groundwater recharge. Well, all of a sudden, when we quit flooding everything because of environmental pressures, and we start using drip irrigation, and we're pumping waters out of our underground aquifers, well, guess what? You're getting zero recharge. And I think for a 20 years, I mean, my grandpa used to say that this is a horrible, horrible thing because every five, six years, he's dropping the well deeper, right? right? They're chasing that water. So I, I think when you start talking about like, you know, Prop 209 and, and legislation or, or propositions, they do need to be revisited from time to time. And our water policies in the state absolutely are antiquated. And there is a, a guy out of Stockton that's very, very involved, you know, and there is not any, and this is kind of his his phrase, but uh, you know, you can't fire one bullet to fix this. You got to fire 15 at the same time, and it cannot be a regional approach. It has to be a statewide fix. And I think we've missed that part. Where right now we have different regions, whether it's it's our district who is is very very protective of the Delta water as they should be. Then they see when any water goes south as water theft. Well, and 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 they're not necessarily wrong because they could if we would you know actually invest in desalinization. Southern California could have a lot of water available to them. Right. But we're not making these investments. We're not looking outside the box. We're looking at our water infrastructure like it's always been. 
because we were scared to death the environmental community and what they're going to do by jamming up all these projects and tie them up in litigation and all of these things. And since 1979, we've not built any new storage capacity in California, but our population has increased dramatically. We've taken states of Oregon and Washington and dumped those in California. You have built a new dam since 1979. That's the crazy part. We have tremendous amounts of runoff that runs off into the gutters and out into the ocean. We need to capture that water flow, and that would help a lot of things, but you can't build storage because the enviros don't want it. You know, I guess kind of talking about, you know, your districts kind of being agricultural hubs, um, not only for the state, but for the world, really. Um, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about housing, a housing crisis, and kind of some of the solutions are build more housing, kind of build more housing where your districts are, um, where there's a lot of farmland. Kind of what are the feelings within your districts, I guess, about expanding housing and kind of taking up ag land and replacing mm -hmm. ag land with housing? Well, we've got to preserve our, our ag land. Um, absolutely, that, that's the more, that's an important thing. You know, a lot of folks want to build downtown. They want to build up and not out. And, and I get part of that. But um, one of the reasons I went to Elk Grove to the suburbs to raise a family, I didn't want to live downtown. If, you, if you're young and you're out partying or if you're old and you're retired, that, that's a different thing. But uh, most f folks want that piece of the American pie. They want a backyard for their kids to go play sports and, and do these type of things. And Elk Grove at one point was the fastest growing city in the country um, back in the day when I was in the city council. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things. And housing is so expensive, and it's because of fees. You look at the fees you're paying for a house, probably $70,000 in fees. And um, people just can't afford the price of housing. And, and part of that, government has a responsibility with that. Um, they haven't done anything to help it. And that, that's kind of the frustrating part. Um, we can't build our way out of this. This was years in the making. It's going to take years to get to deal, get, to crawl our, or dig ourselves out of that hole. I mean, our district would be very, very similar on this regard. I mean, fiercely protective of, of ag land. I mean, what people don't understand is, I mean, prior to you know getting elected, being elected, um, I traveled a lot to different ag regions, you know, around the world. And yeah, you, I mean, you, you on the thirty-second parallel, you can grow, you know, crops in Israel and Australia and Chile and you know Argentina and like all these different, you know some of the European countries, Spain, Portugal, but they don't have the, the, the dirt that we do. Mm -hmm. They don't have the ability to grow um, a large amount of, of quality um, products. Where California, we are so blessed with the best dirt, the most water, really anywhere in the world. And we got, what, 300 plus different types of crops that we grow in the Central Valley. And, and certainly within the 12th Assembly District, like there's probably 300 of them right there. Mm -hmm. But our, our colleagues and some of our friends do not Get that like if you pave over this dirt you're never getting it back you're taking land out of commission right. forever and at some point with the world population growing and you know you have this whole conversation about you know uh, a meatless protein diet you know i mean that was a big move a while back well that's a lot of plants that you have to grow right. for that kind of lifestyle or you have to have the dirt to do that in so it is interesting there is this, this massive switch right now um, housing is a huge issue, but my community is, is very, very protective of ag land. And because right now we don't build, I mean, you, there is very, very few multi-story, you know, multi-family dwellings in, in, in Modesto and Turlock. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe around the colleges that are starting to pop up a little bit, but it's something that we really need to look into. Sprawl is not the answer. But a lot of families have sold off their properties because it's so hard to farm or ranch these days 100%. because of regulation. Yeah. So they, they've been in, in, in the business for generations because they make it so difficult to try and get by through the air board, the water board, 
and, and pesticides, all these regulations that just make it difficult. They just hey, you know what? I'm done. I'm selling it. Especially, especially if that property is already like bordering up to the city or the city limits, right. and they want to annex that, and they're already tired. Like, yeah, done. Like, you want to give me, you know, fifty thousand dollars an acre or whatever it's going to be? Yeah, we're out, no problem. But then that kind of just jams up everybody else. But Coop's absolutely right. I mean, we have made it so difficult. I mean, on the business community in general, which we go back into the budget, um, SB one fourteen, which was you know the tax increase on. Really, for me, the frustrating part was all frustrating, but like the life science community, like we've asked them to create a vaccine and create a cure for COVID-19, but now we want to double down their R&D taxes. So our thank you to them is here's another tax burden. Go deal with that. Meanwhile, Massachusetts, Boston, Cambridge is salivating for these companies to come there. I mean, there's a huge pharmaceutical presence in in Massachusetts right now. In California, we've said, thanks. Here's another tax burden. Mm -hmm. But actually, we need you to help us get through this pandemic that we're in. But we're going to increase your taxes. It just—it's it's just a weird, weird dynamic. Um, the California, you know, political mentality as it relates to the business community—they don't seem to get what businesses fight, and they don't understand that it's not one law or one regulation that's going to kill them, but it's this death by a thousand cuts. Right. So. You know, that's interesting. I guess, you know, you guys have both said that we need to, I guess, fund some communities, certain communities more, um, you know, but we're in a budget deficit and kind of, you know, I guess, where does this revenue come from? You know, you're talking about different taxes. There's different taxes being proposed on the ballot with split roll. I guess, you know, how do, how do we, you know, I guess, solve these issues financially so that I guess, you know, we can solve some of these, you know, problems in these communities? I think that the, um, I would say the, the I don't want to say genuine, but the, the concern I've heard from a lot of my colleagues is they don't want to raise taxes. And I don't really care which party you're with. They're, they're a little adverse just because of the economy and people are struggling to get by. So that's their concern with that. And, you know, they don't want to put another 100 pounds on someone's back. So what, what's the answer? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have a good answer right now. We've got to figure out uh, how to get, dig ourselves out of this hole. I mean, I think strictly coming from the business perspective, if we could give our business community a level of comfort, I mean, you go to Ireland, I think their corporate tax rate's like uh, 12.5% fixed corporate tax rate. But those corporations know what they're going to be paying. Mm -hmm. So they're willing to make that investment. They're willing to stay. When you have a a, a tax code that is so volatile in California that can change on a whim, like it's really, really hard to get the business community to remain and invest. And so for me, like the way that we increase our tax base is let's increase our revenue. Let's, let, let's increase the business community's presence because people will start having that expendable income. People will have those good jobs that are here. They'll start spending money in their community. We'll start getting that sales tax back. And I think we can you know, grow ourselves out of this, but we have to give some level of comfort to the business community that they will be able to survive. And you know, I hate to break it to people, but business owners, are in business to make money. I mean, and it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing because they employ our constituents. I mean, that's kind of how that works. Right. I mean, not everybody can be an employee. You're going to have to be an owner some, somewhere. And because of COVID-19, we'll be losing anywhere between 30 and 50% of our small businesses will not come back. Absolutely. So those are a lot of jobs and a lot of uh, taxes. Wow. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I guess, is there any final parting remarks you have for this, you know, Epic face-off today. Oh, it was epic, all right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great to be here. We appreciate it is, you. It is. Yeah. No, it's, it's one of those things. We've got to work. We're all together. 
and we share a lot of similar interests. We're both in the Valley and uh, we just want to do good legislation. Yeah. Well, well, great. Thanks for joining us. And uh, hopefully we can have you guys on again later. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, man. Some are called dreamers. Wow. 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 Wow.